Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace.
Papa Panav's Special Christmas Day by Leo Tolstoy. It was Christmas Eve, and although it was still afternoon, lights had begun to appear in the shops and houses of the little Russian village, for the short winter day was nearly over. Excited children scurried indoors, and now only muffled sounds of chatter and laughter escaped from closed shutters. Old Papa Panov, the village shoemaker, stepped outside his shop to take one last look around. The sounds of happiness, the bright lights, and the faint but delicious smells of Christmas cooking reminded him of past Christmas times when his wife had still been alive and his own children little. Now they had gone. His usually cheerful face with the little laughter wrinkles behind round spectacles looked sad now. But he went back indoors with a firm step, put up the shutters and set a pot of coffee to heat. Then with a sigh, he settled on his big armchair. Papa did not often read, but tonight he pulled down the old family Bible he read how Mary and Joseph, tired by their journey to Bethlehem, found no room for them at the inn, so that Mary's little baby was born in a shed. Oh dear, exclaimed Papa, for only they had come here, I would have given them my bed. I would have covered the baby with my quilt to keep him warm. He read on about the wise men who had come to see the baby, bringing him splendid gifts, Papa's face fell. I have no gift I could give him, he thought. But then his face brightened. He put down the Bible, got up, stretched his long arms, and took down a small dusty box and opened it. Inside was the perfect pair of tiny, le tiny leather shoes. Papa smiled. They were as good as he remembered, the best shoes he had ever made. I should give him those, he decided. He was feeling tired, and the further he read, the sleepier he became. In no time, he was fast asleep, and as he slept, he dreamt. He dreamt that someone was in his room, and he knew at once, as one does in dreams, that it was Jesus. You have been wishing that you could see me, Papa, he said kindly. Look for me tomorrow. It will be Christmas Day and I will visit you, but look carefully. I will not tell you who I am. When at last Papa awoke, the bells were ringing and a thin light was coming through. Bless my soul, it's Christmas Day. He stood up, stretched, and his face filled with happiness as he remembered his dream. Jesus would visit him. What would he look like? Would he be a baby? Would he be a grown man? Would he be a king? He must watch to recognize him. Papa put a special pot of coffee on for his breakfast, took down the shutters and looked out the window. The street was deserted. No one was stirring yet, except for the road sweeper. He looked as miserable and dirty as ever, and well he might be. Who wanted to work on Christmas day? and in the cold and bitter freezing mist. Papa opened the door, letting in some cold. Come in, he said. Come in and have some hot coffee and warm up. 
The sweeper looked up, scarcely able to believe his ears. He was only too glad to put down his broom and to come in the warmth. His clothes steamed gently in the heat of the stove, and he clasped both hands around the comforting warm mug as he drank. Papa watched him, but his eyes kept going to the window. He didn't want to miss his visitor. Expecting someone, the sweeper finally asked. Papa told him about his dream. I hope he comes, said the sweeper. You've given me a bit of Christmas cheer that I never expected to have. I'd say you deserve to have your dream come true. When he had gone, Papa put on cabbage soup for his dinner, then went to the door again, scanning the street. He saw no one, but then he saw someone was coming. The girl walked so slowly and quietly, hugging the walls of shops and houses that it was a while before he noticed her. She looked tired and she was carrying something. As she drew nearer, he could see that it was a baby wrapped in a very thin shawl. There was such sadness in her face and in the pinched little face of her baby that Papa's heart went out to them. Won't you come in, he said, stepping outside. You both need a warm fire to rest. The young mother let him shepherd her indoors to the comfort of his armchair. She gave a big sigh of relief. I'll warm some milk for your baby, Papa said. I've had children of my own and I can feed her for you. He took the milk from the stove and carefully fed the baby from a spoon, warming her tiny feet by the stove at the same time. She needs shoes, Papa said. But the girl said, I can't afford shoes. I have no husband to bring home money. I'm on my way to the next village to try to get work. Papa remembered the little shoes he had looked at last night, but he had been keeping those for Jesus. He looked again at the cold little feet and made up his mind. Try these on her, he said, handing the baby and the shoes to the mother. The shoes were a perfect fit. The girl smiled. You have been so kind to us, she said. May all your Christmas wishes come true. But Papa was beginning to wonder if his very special Christmas wish would come true. Perhaps he had missed his visitor. He looked up and down the street. There were plenty of people, but they were all faces that he recognized. They were neighbors going to call on their families. He wished them a happy Christmas. He saw people begging and hurried indoors to fetch hot soup and generous hunks of bread, hurrying out in case he missed his important stranger. All too soon, the dusk fell. When Papa went next to the door with his strained eyes, he couldn't make out any passers-by. Most were home and indoors by now. He walked slowly back to his room, put up the shutters, and sat down warily. It had all just been a dream after all. Jesus had not come. But then he knew he was not alone in the room. This was not a dream, for he was wide awake. At first, he seemed to see before his eyes the long stream of people who had come to him that day. He saw again the old road sweeper, the young mother, her baby, 
and the people begging that he had fed. As they passed, each whispered, didn't you see me, Papa? Who are you? He called out, bewildered. Then another voice answered him, and it was the voice from his dream. I was hungry, and you fed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was cold, and you warmed me. I came to you today in every one of those that you had helped and welcomed. All was quiet and still. Only the sound of the big clock ticking could be heard. A great peace and happiness filled the room, overflowing Papa's heart until he wanted to burst out singing and laughing and dancing with joy. So he did come after all, was all he said. This Christmas, I'm thinking of the powerful love that drives those who tend to Jesus as a vulnerable baby. If this is a season when you have love and energy to give, I hope you can welcome others. If this is a season when you are vulnerable and in need, I hope you find yourself being welcomed and cared for. Merry Christmas. can I 
a lamb If I were a wise man I would do my part Yet what can I give him In the Polar Express, American writer and illustrator of children's books, Chris von Allsberg, recounts the tale of a young boy who boards a mysterious train on Christmas Eve bound for the North Pole. Filled with other children in their pajamas, the Polar Express steams northward through the forests and over the mountains. Let's join the children now as the train pulls into the North Pole. The North Pole, it was a huge city standing alone at the top of the world, filled with factories where every Christmas toy was made. At first, we saw no elves. They're gathering at the center of the city, the conductor told us. That is where Santa will give the first gift of Christmas. Who receives the first gift, we all asked. The conductor answered, he will choose one of you. Look, shouted one of the children, the elves. Outside, we saw hundreds of elves. As our train drew closer to the center of the North Pole, we slowed to a crawl. So crowded were the streets with Santa's helpers. When the Polar Express could go no further, we stopped and the conductor led us outside. We pressed through the crowd to the edge of a large open circle. In front of us stood Santa's sleigh. The reindeer were excited. They pranced and paced, 
ringing the silver sleigh bells that hung from their harnesses. It was a magical sound, like nothing I've ever heard. Across the circle, the elves moved apart and Santa Claus appeared. The elves cheered wildly. He marched over to us and pointing to me said, let's have this fellow here. He jumped into his sleigh. The conductor handed me up. I sat on Santa's knee and he asked, now, what would you like for Christmas? I knew that I could have any gift I could imagine, but the thing I wanted most for Christmas was not inside Santa's giant bag. What I wanted more than anything was one silver bell from Santa's sleigh. When I asked, Santa smiled. Then he gave me a hug and told an elf to cut a bell from a reindeer's harness. The elf tossed it up to Santa. He stood holding the bell high above him and he called out, the first gift of Christmas. A clock struck midnight as the elves roared their approval. Santa handed the bell to me and I put it here in my bathrobe pocket. The conductor helped me down from the sleigh. Santa shouted out the reindeer's names and he cracked his whip. His team charged forward and climbed up into the air. Santa circled once above us, then disappeared in the cold, dark polar sky. As soon as we were back inside the Polar Express, the other children asked to see the bell. I reached into my pocket, but the only thing I felt was a hole. I had lost the silver bell from Santa Claus's sleigh. Let's hurry outside and look for it, one of the children said. But the train gave a sudden lurch and started moving. We were on our way home. It broke my heart to lose the bell. When the train reached my house, I sadly left the other children. I stood at the doorway and I waved goodbye. The conductor said something from the moving train, but I couldn't hear him. What? yelled out. I yelled it out. He cupped his hand round his mouth. Merry Christmas, he shouted. The Polar Express let out a loud blast from its whistle and sped away. On Christmas morning, my little sister Sarah and I opened our presents. When it looked as if everything had been unwrapped, Sarah found one left box behind the tree. It had my name on it. Inside was the silver bell. There was a note. I still have it here in my pocket. And the note said, found this on the seat of my sleigh. Fix that hole in your pocket. Signed, Mr. C. I shook the bell. It made the most beautiful sound my sister and I had ever heard. But my mother said, oh, that's too bad. Yes, said my father, it's broken. When I had shaken the bell, my parents had not heard a sound. At one time, most of my friends could hear the bell, but as the years passed, it fell silent for all of them. Even Sarah found one Christmas that she could no longer hear 
its sweet sound. Though I've grown old, the bell still rings for me as it does for everyone who truly believes. Do you hear what I hear? the story from Margaret Rankle and have been eager to share it with you from the moment I read it. 
It comes from her new book called Graceland at Last, Notes on Hope and Heartache from the American South. It was 1994, one week before Christmas, when my not quite three-year-old spied a shopping mall Santa and insisted on paying him another visit. I tried to demure. I tried to deflect. His official Santa visit had taken place weeks earlier. This trip to the mall was just a chance to escape the gloom that was Nashville in December to wear out those busy toddler legs in a place where it wasn't raining and cold. We planned to ride a few escalators and throw a few pennies in the fountain. I wish for a brudder, my child yelled with every splash of copper coin. And all the nearby shoppers smiled. I could not smile. Then the not-quite-three-year-old caught sight of Santa, that mythical person of endless bounty. Here was the chance to see the great man one more time before he came secretly into our own house in the dark of night. Santa himself was less enthusiastic. Perhaps surly is just the default position of a shopping mall Santa the week before Christmas. When my boy held up his arms for a boost into the big man's lap, Santa simply looked at me. Finally, I did the hoisting myself. Ho, 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 Santa said. There was no exclamation point after that last ho. My son smiled beatifically, confident in Santa's love and largesse. I yike a golden trumpet, he announced. Behind him, I gave a tight-lipped shake of my head. Santa did not meet my eyes. I yike a pitchfork, my child continued, a real pitchfork. Now I was sending desperate semaphores toward the man with the bag. Please, no, my eyes begged. Please tell him he can't have a pitchfork for Christmas. Santa ignored me. Have you been a good boy this year? He asked. Yes, yes, my son nodded. Then of course you can have a golden trumpet, Santa said. Of course you can have a pitchfork for Christmas. He looked at me. The expression on his face, even all these years later, is hard to describe. It looked for all the world like revenge. I should have seen the whole thing coming. A year earlier, two days before Christmas, a black and orange moving van had pulled up in front of our house and the next door neighbor's house too. A truck so large it spanned both lots. My boy stood on our sofa for most of that day, watching through the window as workers loaded all of our neighbors' worldly belongings onto that unfathomably large vehicle. At dusk, when they were done, the truck began to back up, beeping all the way. My son hopped up and down, clapping his hands in glee. Then he revised his Christmas list. 
it suddenly consisted solely of a black and orange truck that beeped in reverse. By the grace of God and Toys R Us, Santa found one. But a golden trumpet? A pitchfork? I was pretty sure pitchforks were not part of the Toys R Us inventory. This time Santa was going to need some serious backup. Four grandparents, a great aunt, a great great aunt, and all seven sets of regular aunts and uncles were dispatched on this pre-internet search that spanned five states. For days, the phone rang with reports. An ornamental French horn had been located in a florist supply shop. It didn't make noise, but it was golden, and it would fit into a child's hands. A miniature rake had turned up in a gardening catalog, and maybe a rake was close enough to a pitchfork. Would a real penny whistle work in lieu of a trumpet? In the end, a toy trumpet made of white plastic arrived via two-day mail, along with a golden but silent decorative French horn for good measure. On Christmas morning, a handsome child-sized rake stood in for the pitchfork beneath the tree. The delighted child in red footy pajamas didn't seem to notice the substitution. All of this sounds hopelessly indulgent, I know. A rookie mistake by parents and an entire extended family who hadn't yet figured out that they aren't doing their children any favors when they protect them from every possible disappointment. But that year, our house was permeated by sadness, and I didn't see how I could bear any more of it. The boy who shouted, I wish for a brother, every time he threw a penny into a shopping mall fountain, could not have known that his mother had just suffered a miscarriage. He didn't understand what it meant that tears sprang to her eyes with every wish he made at that fountain. He didn't understand his father's feeling of helplessness. So we might not be able to give him a brother, but by God, we would find him a trumpet. And the entire extended family on both sides was determined to help. Together, we would find that child something that passed for a pitchfork even if it meant paying too much for mail-order garden equipment. That was 25 years ago, and the not-quite-three-year-old is now a man. All but one of his grandparents are gone, and both great-aunts, too. Even the shopping mall is gone. But not everything is gone. I didn't know it in 1994, but my firstborn would eventually get his wish for not one brother, but two. The aunts and uncles who loved him then still love him now. And next summer, they will gather for his wedding. They will stand behind him as he begins a new life and a new family. A reminder that that new little family is not alone in the world. Their loved ones will be there to see them through no matter what comes their way. Every year, I find myself 
thinking of that Christmas when a surly Santa gave our entire clan a chance to surround our family with love. The chance collectively to keep the magic alive for one little boy with a sad mother and a bewildered father who didn't know how to help the sadness. It was not the happiest Christmas of my life and it was not the grandest, but it is the one I won't ever forget. One dollar and 87 cents, that was all. And 60 cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time, one dollar and 87 cents. And the next day, 
would be Christmas. There was clearly nothing left to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl. So Della did. So begins American short story writer O. Henry's timeless Christmas story, The Gift of the Magi, first published in the New York Sunday World on December 10th, 1905. Della and her husband Jim were living in a furnished flat that cost $8 a week. The card next to their broken doorbell read, Mr. James Dillingham Young, belying their poverty. Oh, they were poor, but their love made them rich. It was a great love. Oh, Henry continues, Della finished her cry, stood by the windows and looked out dully at a gray cat walking a gray fence in a gray backyard. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had only a dollar and 87 cents with which to buy Jim a present, her Jim. Suddenly, she stood before the glass. Her eyes were shining brilliantly, but her face had lost its color. Rapidly, she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. There were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Had the queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, Della would have let her hair hang out of the window someday to dry just to depreciate her majesty's jewels and gifts. So now Della's beautiful hair fell about her rippling and shining, it reached below her knees and made itself almost a garment for her. She faltered for a moment and stood still while a tear or two splashed on the worn red carpet. And then Della ran out the door and down the stairs to the street where she stopped. The sign read, Madame Sofroni, hair goods of all kinds. Madame was large, too white, and chilly. Will you buy my hair? asked Della. Twenty dollars, said Madame, lifting the mass with a practiced hand. Give it to me quick, said Della. She left without a backward glance and spent the next two hours ransacking stores, turning them inside out for Jim's present. She found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was none other like it. It was a platinum fob, simple and chaste in its design, a chain properly proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by meretricious ornamentation, as all good things should. It was even worthy of the watch. As soon as she saw it, she knew it must be Jim's. It was like him. Quietness and value, the description applied to both. $21 they took from her for it, and she hurried home with the 78 cents. With that chain on his watch, Jim might be properly anxious about the time 
in any company. When Della reached home, her intoxication gave way to a little prudence and reason. She got out her curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love. And then Della doubled the fob chain in her hand and sat on the corner of the table near the door. When she heard his step on the stair way down on the first flight, she turned white for just a moment. She whispered, please God, make him think I am still pretty. Jim stepped inside the door and stopped. His eyes were fixed on Della and there was an expression in them that she couldn't read. It was not anger, nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror. He simply stared at her. Della wriggled off the table and went to him. Jim, darling, she cried. I had my hair cut off and sold it because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow out again. My hair grows awfully fast. Say Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. You don't know what a beautiful gift I've got for you. You've cut off your hair, asked Jim, as if he had not arrived at the fact yet. He looked around the room curiously. You say your hair's gone? Then out of his trance, Jim seemed to wake. He enfolded his Della and drew a package from his coat pocket. Don't make any mistake about me, Dell, he said. I don't think there's anything in the way of a haircut that could make me like my girl any less. But if you'll unwrap that package, you may see why you had me going for a while at first. Della tore at the string and paper, and then an ecstatic scream of joy, and then, alas, a quick change to hysterical tears and wails, for there lay the combs, the set of combs that Della had worshipped for long in a Broadway store, pure toter shell with jeweled rims, just the shade to wear in the beautiful, vanished hair. They were expensive combs, she knew, and her heart had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession. And now they were hers. She hugged them to her heart and said again, my hair grows so fast, Jim. And then she leapt up. Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly on her open palm. Isn't it a dandy, Jim? You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it. Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled on the couch and put his hands under his, the back of his head. He smiled. Del, he said, let's put our Christmas gifts away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use at present. I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. And now, suppose we eat some dinner. Oh, Henry concludes this magical tale. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men, who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. 
Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, this young couple, these two, were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are the wisest. They are the magi. Beloved spiritual companions, the Magi brought valuable gifts, but love was not among them. At Christmas time and always, may we remember that love is our greatest gift. Love makes us rich. May we add to our love generosity, and may we share this great love. Amen.
W.H. Auden wrote, and now let us allow Christmas to overtake us in all our haste and unpreparedness and renew the miracle of love once again in our lives. Let us keep this faith, beloveds, and pass it on. The service begins when the service ends. Bless your hearts. I love you. Merry Christmas. Amen.
please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace.